the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 27 through 36. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and starting to read at verse 27, and we'll read down through verse 36. If you'd like to follow in your copy of the Scriptures, I'm using the uh, New King James Version, so it'll be a little bit different from the ESV, but really the only substantial difference, and it's not really a substantial difference, would be in verse um, 35, where in the New King James it says, this is my beloved son, hear him, and the ESV probably translates it something like this, my son, the chosen one, but the beloved son, of course, is the, the chosen one. Well, follow as I read, starting at verse 27. Jesus speaking here to his disciples, and this is just after Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus told them about his coming crucifixion and death and resurrection, and then told them to take up the cross and follow him. And then after that, our Lord says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw him, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So the reading of God's holy and inspired word. The scripture here says that uh, the garments of Jesus became white and glistening. How white is white? Well, over in Matthew, it talks about his robes being as white as snow. Now, I don't suppose you experience snow very often down here in this part of Georgia. Maybe occasionally it comes. I'm not sure about that. But where we live, up in Rockford, Illinois, we have snow. In December, we had 14 inches of snow. Now, unfortunately, it's all melted by now. But on Christmas Eve... Uh, one of my granddaughters and two of my grandsons went outside and we built two snow two snowmen. Now basically it was my granddaughter who is about, uh, let's see, what is she, 14 years old? 
And uh, the two little ones uh, who were much younger, about six or seven years old, seven or eight years old, they, they made the fort. Of course, we had a wonderful snowball fight. But when snow comes, it is absolutely beautiful. The glistening white. Now, it soon gets dirty, of course, because of the impurities in the air and because of the snow plows throwing salt on the streets and putting it up. But initially, it's just an absolutely gorgeous white. And, and Matthew says that the, the, the clothes of our Lord Jesus were, were as white as snow. And here we read that they were white and glistening, as white as light, it says. So this was an amazing transfiguration. The face of our Lord Jesus was altered. His clothes became white. And there they saw him in his glory, as we shall see him someday when he comes in the air or when we go to heaven before that. What a glorious transfiguration this was. Now, th this glory of Jesus was, was displayed to just three of the disciples. They were told to not tell anyone until after Jesus had risen from the dead. Matthew says they didn't understand what that meant at all, but they did keep it to themselves. They obeyed the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, after he had risen from the dead, then they told and they have told us. And here it is recorded in these two Gospels. As well as Peter mentions it in 1 Peter chapter 1, and Lord willing, uh, we'll turn to that passage somewhere in the course of this message. Now we should study this passage of Scripture not only because it's revealed in the Word of God, but also because it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a truth, it's an act in history that will greatly help us in a world that is full with, filled with turmoil, discouragement, trials, and difficulties. When we look at the world around us, we see a world that's in a mess. Uh, we are concerned in our nation about the terrorists, and rightfully so. There are wars that are going on. There's poverty. Our inner cities are, are, are sad to say, in, in, in disrepair, and there's so much violence. Uh, you've heard about what's happening in Chicago, Illinois. Well, to a lesser extent, in the city in which we live, Rockford, just an hour and a half west of Chicago, we have murders regularly. Uh, we, we have shootings regularly. And, and it's, it's in the inner city, and, and we, we, we grieve over that. And then sometimes we feel unsafe because of things like this that happen. And here we are living in this world of trouble and difficulty. And then we may look around and wish that the gospel, and I'm sure you wish it, that wish that the gospel would come with greater power and that more and more people would come to Christ. And we see that happening, but we want to see it happen even more. And then some of you are probably facing your own personal crises and you have trouble, perhaps at work, perhaps in your family or wherever, and what, what should we look at? What should we think about when we have these troubles? Well, one of the things we should think about is our Lord Jesus Christ and his, in his transfiguration. Because as we behold his glory and understand that he is the one who is the beloved son of God, I suggest to you that it will help us immensely in a world that is filled with trials and difficulties and in our personal lives. It helps me, and I trust it will help you. What I want to do this morning is to look at this transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ 
And I want you to consider with me some five or four. We're going to look at just four purposes of the transfiguration. Now, I'm not suggesting these are the only purposes of the transfiguration, but I believe that they are four of the purposes of the transfiguration. We will see, first of all, that the tra purpose of the transfiguration is to strengthen our faith. Secondly, we'll see that a purpose of the transfiguration is what was to prepare Christ himself for his upcoming trial and decease. A third purpose of the transfiguration is, I suggest, to teach us to be satisfied with Jesus Christ alone. And a fourth purpose that we will consider together this morning is to teach us the importance of Christ's death, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at, let's look at these purposes together. One of the purposes of the transfiguration is to strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. It's interesting that in both Mark and Matthew, there is a notation made, a time notation. Not always do we see this, but we see it here. We see in verse 28, it says, Now it came to pass eight days after these sayings. So the Holy Spirit specifically says this time frame. After what sayings? Well, it was after the saying, the confession of Peter, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you may remember that Mark says six days. There's no contradiction here. They just have different way of counting time. Some of us do it in a way that's exclusive of the first day that we're talking about and the last day that it happens. And some of us conclude all the days. Luke happens to use all the days, the day that um, the day that the confession of Peter was made and the day of the transfiguration. Mark says it's six days because he doesn't count the day it was said and the day that it happened, he just counts the six days in between. Uh, so but but the point is, the point is that there is this time notation that is made, this eight days after. Because you see, the transfiguration was the confirmation of the confession that Peter made. It was to strengthen the faith of these disciples so that no one could doubt. Prove it. Prove it, is what people would say. Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now prove it. Now God doesn't have to prove anything to anyone, but he condescends. And he proved it. He proved it with the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to strengthen our faith. In going through my father's papers after he died, um, not quite two years ago now, I found a court ruling of the Supreme Court of Iowa. And I was interested in reading it, and as I read through it, it was about my grandfather, this document was a document preserved from 1922. It was about my grandfather who um, had driven west in his horse and buggy and then south and went by his cousin's house. And as he was going by his cousin's farmstead, his cousins came out and beat him up. And uh, he was suing them for damages. And as I read the court document, I thought, my grandfather's going to lose. I mean, there, there's three witnesses against him. 
my grandfather, three guys beat him up, but, but, but it's just his word against three guys. I read on through the Supreme Court ruling, and at the end, to my surprise, I found that the Supreme Court of Iowa, and this was after appeals, ruled in his favor. And I thought, how did that happen? Well, then I noted that what he had done, as soon as he was beaten up, he drove an additional five miles into the county seat town, and he had his picture taken. And the picture showed his injuries. And so he entered that picture into evidence. And it was that picture that won the day for him. And you see, here is the picture, if you please, that wins the day that Jesus Christ really is the Son of the living God, the Christ, the one who was promised, because his face was altered. And that's the picture that these disciples saw. He is the Christ. And dear friends, that ought to strengthen our faith. It's not just the confession of Peter, but it is the exclamation point of the living God who says, this is my son and here's the proof. See him now in his glory, even before he's crucified, even before the resurrection. See him now glorified. And that should cause us to greatly rejoice and to know that this one that we love this one who died for us is truly the Son of the living God. So does the world appear to be out of control? Does it look like everything is falling apart around us? Oh, there is a man who is in glory now. And this man according to the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, who says, And he, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that's God the Son, Jesus Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, that is, for the purpose of the church. There's nothing out of control. Because he is the son of the living God who is now in glory. Nothing ever has to be altered in his face again. No new clothing ever has to appear on him for he is now in this robe that is as white as snow. White and glistening. And he is the one who has all things put where? Under his feet. And I think if something is under our feet, we have pretty good dominion over it, don't you? And so the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, is now ruling and reigning in all things under His feet. And so whatever we see happening in the world, whatever we see happening in our own lives, we must understand that it is at the bidding of our Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this transfiguration, I suggest to you, should strengthen our faith and give us hope and confidence in the midst of a world that appears to be falling apart. It's not. It's not. 
our Savior reigns. He reigns over all. Well, there's a second purpose that I suggest uh, that of the transfiguration. And that is not only is a purpose of the transfiguration to strengthen our faith, but it, is all, it was also to prepare Christ himself for his coming trial. Um, you know, and you confess, a triune God, do you not? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There is but one God. And you confess that there are three persons in the Godhead. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you confess that each one is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God, eternally generated. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. And furthermore, you confess that it is the eternal, the eternally generated Son of God who took upon himself human flesh, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then born in the manger, so that this second person of the Godhead is fully God and fully man. And you understand, and we all understand, that the man, Christ Jesus, was sent in the world in order to deliver us from our sins. And we understand that that mission on which he was sent by his Father was the most difficult mission that could ever be given to any man. And the difficulty of the mission is, is seen in, in the life of our Lord Jesus himself. You recall that as a man who was in his early 30s, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they said, How can you see Abraham? You're not yet 50. What 30-year-old man is said to be not yet 50? They might have said, You're not yet 40. I suggest to you that the, that the weight of bearing our sin, even in his youth, was so heavy that he looked older than a 30, early 30-year-old 30 man would look. But beyond that, whether that's an accurate deduction on my part or not, we do know this, that when it came time for him to die and he was in the garden with his disciples and he went off and prayed, he said, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's as though the Father just lifted the curtain and there he saw what it would be like to bear the sins of his people. It was a mission that is that was unbearable. And yet he would say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then after that prayer, there was the kiss of betrayal by his friend, as was prophesied in the Psalm. And then there was the desertion of all his disciples as he predicted that they would do. And then there were these four trials 
before Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate again. All of them, an abuse of justice beyond any abuse of justice that has ever occurred in the history of mankind. And then there was the beating and the crown of thorns by Herod's men. And then there was the way to Golgotha where Simon the Cyrene had to help and take his cross and carry it because of the abuse that he'd received. And then there was the crucifixion. And then there was the mocking. He has saved others. Why does he not save himself? And then the greatest, the greatest trial. Three hours of darkness when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something that you and I cannot even begin to comprehend. But, while he was experiencing all these things, did he ever think about and remember the transfiguration? Oh, my dear friends, he did. Because the writer to Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, who said, Who for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the sufferings of the cross. It was the joy that was set before him, and he had a foretaste of that joy on that mount. When he was transfigured before these three disciples and had the conversation with Moses and Elijah, the joy that was set before him, and his father gave him a foretaste of that joy. When he was on the mount, Oh, how gracious his father was to him. And then gave him the confirmation, this is my beloved son. Now I suppose we could argue that Jesus didn't need that, for he is the God-man. But my friends, he did need it. Because he's a real man. He's about to suffer what no man has ever suffered before, and no man ever will suffer. Even those who are in hell for all eternity will never suffer what he suffered as he bore the wrath of God there on the cross. And it was remembering the transfiguration, I suggest to you, that, that prepared Christ for the coming trial which was going to come upon him. And you know there's an application for us. And that is, whatever trial may be coming for us or whatever trial we're in, remembering the transfiguration will prepare us for those trials. Well, I suggest to you a third purpose for the transfiguration. Not only is the transfiguration to prepare or to strengthen our faith, not only was it to prepare Christ for the coming trial, but a third purpose I suggest is the transfiguration is to teach us to be satisfied with Christ alone. Um, you know, there are some people who feel like they need to have more than Christ. Now, they wouldn't say that, and I wouldn't want to accuse them of thinking that in its crassest terms, but but they, they want more. 
they want uh, some signs and some wonders. I remember reading a man years ago, he says, I want the stuff of the Acts of the Apostles. He says, it's the stuff of the Acts of the Apostles. It's the signs, the wonders, which really is what we need today. Well, um, this transfiguration shows us the falsity of that kind of thinking. It really does. I, I read a sermon by C.H. Spurgeon. It wasn't on this text. It was from uh, Matthew 17, verses 5 and 6, but it, it's similar. The cloud overshadowed Jesus, and he said, This is my beloved son. Uh, listen to uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And in the introduction to that sermon, uh, Spurgeon makes some very interesting observations. He says, um, it is exceedingly important to have clear evidences of the truth of our holy religion. Sometimes I dare say you have wished that God would speak out of heaven in your hearing or that he would work some extraordinary marvel before your eyes that you might know beyond all question the truth of the gospel of Jesus. He said, then he goes on to say that this desire for signs is nothing new, nothing new at all. He says, people have always wondered that. He says, but stop to think about it. He said, what happened to the disciples when the voice and the sign came out of heaven? Well, they fell flat on their face with fear and trembling as the voice came out of heaven. And then Mr. Spurgeon goes on to say, um, do we want that thing? Do we, every, every time we're in trouble, do we want a voice to come out of heaven? He says, if every time we were in trouble, every time we have a difficulty, a voice came out of heaven, we'd be falling on our face, we'd be spending most of our time on our faces. <laughs> and that's right, we would be, wouldn't we? No, no, we don't need signs and wonders and voices out of heaven. Not at all. And that's what the transfiguration teaches us. One of the purposes of the transfiguration is to teach us that we need to be satisfied with Jesus Christ alone. After the voice came out of heaven, it says, God said, hear him. Hear him. Now, this was... Um, in response to Peter. As we read it, I heard some of you chuckle, and we all ought to chuckle when we read that Peter said, uh, it's so great for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's build one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. And then Luke records, not knowing what he said. He really didn't know what he was saying. He, just, he was caught up in the emotion and the excitement of the moment, and in the emotion and the excitement of the moment, let's do this. But God said, no, hear him. That's all you need to do. Don't need to build tabernacles. Forget your emotional high. As great as what you've seen, I've only shown you this so that you get the point that you need to listen to him. And of course, Peter hadn't been listening to Jesus. After he confessed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said he was going to be crucified, he was going to be punished, uh, by, by the Pharisees and Sadducees and be handed over to death. And what did Peter say? Lord, this can't happen to you. We know who the Messiah is. He's the one coming in glory, the come, one coming to reign and rule. This can't happen to you. And of course, Jesus, get behind me, Satan. 
You don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about the things of men, not the things of God. And Peter needed to learn, and you and I need to learn, that we need to listen to Jesus. And to be satisfied with Jesus Christ alone and be satisfied with his words, which are recorded for us in all the scriptures, in the New Testament especially. And so the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are what we need. We don't need signs. We don't need wonders. We just need to understand the words of the gospel, the words of the New Testament, the words of Jesus Christ. And the words of Jesus Christ are all about the cross. The words of Jesus Christ are all about taking up our cross and following him. As he taught his disciples in verses 23 through 26 of this same chapter. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For those whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in the Father's and of the holy angels. Simply listen to Jesus. And by faith receive his words. Yesterday I heard a story about Robert Robinson. He was a particular Baptist minister in the 1700s. He was ordained in 1760. And you know Robert Robinson. Or if you don't, you've sung his hymn. You sang, you sang his hymn this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Wonderful hymn, isn't it? In 1760, when he was ordained, Robinson um, gave his confession of faith, orthodox, thorough, complete, the triune God, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the um, salvation by grace, the whole thing. He confessed it. He was ordained to the gospel ministry. In um, 1778, he wrote a circular letter for the particular Baptist Association where he said that it's not, not, it's not enough just to confess these truths. We must experience them and we must know them in our own hearts and embrace them and love them. Also in 1778, he wrote a treatise on the divinity of Christ showing that Jesus Christ is truly very God of very God. After he wrote that treatise, those Socinians who deny the divinity of Jesus Christ wrote an opposition to him. By 1784, Robert Robinson was castigating St. Augustine and the particular Baptists who held 
to the divinity of Christ. And by 1787, just five years before he died, he again denied everything that he had confessed before. What happened to Robert Robinson? I suggest to you that fundamentally, at the root of it all, he quit listening to Jesus Christ. Although he had confessed the faith, and although he knew that there had to be an experiential experience of the faith in one's heart. Dear friend, if we are to avoid the end of a Robert Robertson, we must hear Christ and listen to him and take up our cross daily and follow him, lest we end up like him. Still a good hymn. It's still a wonderful hymn. But the hymn will do us no good unless we hear Christ. Unless we hear Christ. Oh, God, help us. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Oh, I will listen to Christ by your grace, by your grace, by your grace, trusting only Him. Well, there is a fourth purpose of the transfiguration that I want to speak about this morning. Not only is the transfiguration a purpose to strengthen our faith, not only was it to prepare Christ for the coming trial, not only is it to teach us to be satisfied with Christ, but fourthly, I suggest to you that a purpose of the transfiguration is to teach us the importance of the death of Christ. Notice here that in the text it says that when Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, what did they talk about? Well, they talked about his decease. What a wonderful subject to talk about. You're going to die, and you're going to die a horrible death. How often do you do that? I mean, so, so sometimes it's even hard to talk about a person's death when they're on their deathbed with them, isn't it? We sort of want to avoid the subject. Even as Christians, sometimes that's true. But Moses and Elijah appeared, and they talked to him about his death. Moses and Elijah knew the importance and the foundational truth that, 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 this, that, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, must die to take away sin. And that his death is the only way that a man can be acceptable to God. They understood that they were in heaven because of the death which Jesus Christ was about to die. And so they talked to him about it. And I, I, we're not told the details of that conversation. But we can make some conjectures, can't we? You're going to die. We understand you're going to die so that we can remain in heaven. And, and we understand that, that your death is foundational to this whole matter of men being saved. And they no doubt encouraged him, knowing perhaps a little bit about the trials that he was going to face, to persevere on and to thank him for his willingness to take upon himself human flesh. And whatever else they might have talked about, you, you, you can imagine that in your own mind. 
And why did they talk about his decease? Because the death of Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. It is the very center of the gospel. That's why Paul said, when he went to Corinth, this city of philosophers, that he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that must be the subject of our messages. It must be the subject of our thoughts. Jesus Christ and him crucified. We remember his death regularly as we partake of these elements. Jesus said, remember me. Remember me. Remember my body was broken for you. Remember that my blood was shed for you. Never forget this. Never forget this. That I died in your place. Why did Jesus have to die? It's because of our sin. We've broken his law. We are guilty before him, even as we had in the prayer this morning. We have broken his law. We are guilty. We are liars. We are idolaters. We are covetous. And the wages of sin is death. And the wages of sin demand the justice of God, demand the wrath of God on the human race for all eternity. But Jesus Christ, is our propitiation. That is, the one who satisfied completely and entirely the justice, the wrath of God, so that we can stand before our God, clothed in his righteousness. The one who has satisfied the justice of God and be entirely accepted in the beloved. And when God said to his son, this is my beloved son, everyone who is in Christ is beloved, is loved, because he's in Christ. And this is the whole matter of the gospel, isn't it? It's how do we get into Christ? Because if we're in Christ, if we're in union with him, if we get into him, we are fully accepted in the beloved. What a glorious, glorious truth. I, I, I would just sum up these, these four purposes by saying that they can all be summed up by saying that the transfiguration of Jesus Christ is to teach us to behold the glory of Christ. Not merely to get an emotional high by thinking, wow, how great it will be to see him in his glory. That's good to think that way. But you see, the emotional high didn't, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't what uh, God wanted Peter and James and John to go away with. They wanted him to go away to, see, to think of the glory of God as the reason for listening to him. Behold the glory of Christ. And as we behold the glory of Christ, we will come to understand that here is truth. When Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, all truth we will ever know comes in, from, and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, 
the Apostle John said, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And this is a truth that has so much practical, day by day, help for us to know that our Lord is indeed the one who is glorified, who reigns above all, who controls the world, who controls our own lives. Oh, we need not be discouraged. Now, I know you get discouraged, unless you're like some people who are sanguine and you never do. Most of us aren't that way. We do get discouraged, even when we should not get discouraged. At least I do. But oh, if I come back and think on Christ and think on his glory, then there's reason always to be encouraged. It's when we forget this. It's when we forget to hear him. It's when we forget to, re, to, to when we forget about his glory that the dark clouds of discouragement come over our souls. Or it's when the things of this world become so important that we forget Christ. That also leads to discouragement. But oh, my friend, who believes in Jesus, behold the glory of God in the face of the transfigured Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are not yet in Christ, get into him. Get into Christ. You say, how do I get into Christ? You trust him. He died for sinners. You believe on him. Oh, if you get into him, all the glory of Jesus is yours. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Or as the Apostle Paul said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on his name. And indeed, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that he is our Redeemer. We thank you for the transfiguration, this picture which proves beyond any doubt that the confession of Peter is indeed a true and proper confession. And we also confess with Peter, Lord Jesus, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us, we pray, Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, to live in accordance with that truth that we confess. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.